remember where we were at when I left. We were somewhere around Ephesians 3 or 4. And so when I got out to the West Coast, we started at the beginning of Ephesians. It's like, I want to get through this book. And I've really enjoyed going through the first half again. I know we got through at least the first half here. But uh, let's uh, pause for a moment of prayer and ask the Spirit to guide our, our thoughts, to capture our hearts, and that our our wills would be engaged by His working. Father, You command us to humble ourselves under Your mighty hand that You might exalt us at proper time, casting all of our anxieties upon You because You care for us. Our God, we would humbly ask that You would cause us to be sober in spirit and be on the alert, knowing that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Cause us in this equipping time as we understand Your Word and we would seek to be doers of this Word to resist Him firm in our faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by our brethren who are in the world. Knowing after we've suffered for a little while that the God of all grace, who's called us to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So, O God, it's to You be all the dominion forever and ever. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus who delivered us from our sins. Amen. I would like to preach to you this morning a sermon on the spiritual armor for spiritual strength from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. We've got three formidable foes with which we contend with in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world referring to the evil system around us that's opposed to our God, the flesh which is our unredeemed humanness that can do nothing to please Him, and the devil who's a fallen angel that presides over the kingdom of darkness. His desire is to use the world and the flesh to throw our lives into devastation because the moment you and I trusted Christ as Savior, we became marked targets to Him who prowls about seeking whom to devour. You don't have to be a Christian for very long to know that the Christian life is no playground. It's a battlefield. And the closer you are to Christ, the closer in His likeness you become, the closer to the front line of the conflict you are. We cannot afford to be ignorant of the threatening schemes of the evil one. It's critical for us to be sober and well-informed, well-equipped for the battle ahead. Followers of Jesus so easily and frequently forget that we're at war. I know I do. We daily need to recall the spiritual warfare we're involved in because it's an invisible war. We spend so much time polishing the brass banners of a sinking ship of the, the physical world that we experience. And oftentimes, this subject of the spiritual fight, spiritual warfare is handled in an imbalanced way. Turn on Christian radio, so-called. Oftentimes, omitting key components or adding unscriptural antics. I want you to look with me at Paul's instructions 
for standing in victory over our spiritual enemy for the glory of our ascended and exalted Lord. Follow along with me as I read for us from Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers of against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I just read for us that which is inspired by God. It is absolutely inerrant. It is the authority for what we believe and what we practice in our lives. And it's absolutely sufficient to lead lives to His eternal glory. Mighty blessed to our lives as we understand it better today. Notice the general principles of spiritual battle that he begins with in verses 10 to 13. He starts off with this finally in verse 10, or as the New Living Translation clearly brings out, a final word. After Paul has been giving a lot of the the spiritual application to the the doctrine that he'd been unpacking for the first three chapters. You get into chapter 4 and verse 1, and here is is the carryover. Here is the, the rubber meets the road of the Christian experience of theology in life. And so he's got one final word. It's clearly been taught from this pulpit at Newtown about the indicative and imperative connection. When you get into the second half of Ephesians, and in rapid fire, we've got all these, these uh, imperative commands of, uh, you know, you, you turn to any of the epistles, and this is what the church is to be and to do for the glory of our God through the indwelling Spirit of God. Because of who we are in Jesus Christ, our new identity, being robed in His righteousness, united to Him vitally, being indwelt by the Spirit we are able to do what God commands us to do. And so that, that vital indicative reality of who I am in Jesus that empowers me to do what He's commanded me to do for His glory. And so we begin with another command of Ephesians chapter 6, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Notice just a couple of these pertinent uh, commands, this first one being strong in verse 7. It serves as kind of a a summary exhortation over this whole section. It stands over, over this passage and gets to the heart of what he calls his readers to do. It stands to shake up the saints to reality and the sobriety of the Christian life, which is no picnic. It's no cakewalk. It's a, it's a grave mistake to think that in the happy hour of our conversion, all trouble and strife ceased. If you think that's so, if you, if you come to faith in Christ, you haven't been walking with very long, if that's, if that's what you think. That hour that you, that you got saved marked the beginning of life 
lifelong warfare. Not a war for our salvation, to be sure, but a war in Christian service. And so this, this closing section gives a vivid account of this conflict with the forces of evil. And we want to be informed by Scripture rather than all the hoopla that's characterized uh, this, uh, this spiritual warfare that we're to engage in. Ultimately, Satan's power over the Christian is already broken. And the great war is won through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, which forever conquered the power of sin and death. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a present reality. That's good news. We live in light of that good news. It's an already fact stated in Scripture, but it's also a not yet in that we live in that battle trusting Him to give us the strength to stand strong. The writer to the Hebrews puts it a bit differently in Hebrews 2 and verse number 14. He says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he, speaking of Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In our experience on planet earth, battles of temptation go on regularly. So the Lord's power, His strength of His indwelling Spirit and the force of biblical truth are required for victory. That's not a new truth. That's a reminder of old truth that we embrace. And of significant note is the clarification that this strength that He commands us to have is not our own. It is a strength in the Lord. In fact, the Greek grammar uh, stresses the idea of receiving strength from an outside source. This is yet another one of the many commands in the New Testament that are impossible left to ourselves. Again, calling, calling to task what we stated earlier, the indicative imperative reality. If, we are, if you're not a Christian, what God calls to happen for His glory, you cannot do. We are empowered by being united with Christ and indwelt by His Spirit. This imperative implies volition, It's a call to action on the part of the hearers. This is our responsibility, to seek God and to present ourselves to Him for filling and empowerment. That was Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. There's a little addition that He gives to the the verb in the original languages to to, intensify it. He uses this, this same verb in His appeal to His son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.1, to be strong. This is no new truth. This is, this is cover-to-cover biblical theology. It invokes a, a memory of God's repeated call to Joshua. You remember the opening verses in chapter 1 of Joshua? To be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.6 and in Joshua 1.7, he, he uh, even connects it with obeying God's law. And in verse 9, to be strong and don't tremble for the Lord your God is with you. There's room for trembling if it were not for the Lord to be on our side. An astonishing and comforting reality is this if you have a high view of God, a biblical view of God. 
You know, as Joshua was about to lead God's people into Canaan, they're going to face numerous enemies, fighting many battles. It would be a hopeless cause. Give up if God weren't on your side. Different, you know, the, the battle's a bit different now for God's people. We, we, we face powerful enemies, more powerful than, the, than uh, human opponents that Old Testament Israel faced on that day. The idea here is by virtue of union with Christ, His inherent power can be tapped into by us. That's why Paul could exultantly say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Now, that verse to the Philippians is, is not a blanket pass like so many people use it. It is for God's design, plan, and glory, and in accord with His will, spiritually speaking. In Him, we can do all things, but without Him, defeat is inevitable. Notice how how Paul emphasizes standing in the strength of another. To, to further clarify this, this strength in the Lord, he finishes off verse 10, and in the strength of His might. In the strength of His might. Power is used in the New Testament only of supernatural power. And might of strength inherently possessed, thus it's the Lord's. It's nothing short of His might is sufficient in this battle. We ought to remember his earlier teachings uh, earlier in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He said, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ. There's that. Remember, uh, you'll have to uh, go back over a year ago in your memory banks here. Remember, we, we said that uh, that little word in is the biggest word in Ephesians. To be in Christ is to have everything. To be outside of Christ is to have nothing. So this was in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly places. This is where he's describing this exceeding greatness and the power of God available to believers. Readers are urged to lay hold on that power, to meet and to vanquish evil forces that assail them. I'd even add that the, this, this command that Paul gives us here in Ephesians 6.10 is in the present tense. It's... it's an on, since it's an ongoing battle, there's the need for this ongoing strength. Newtown Bible Church needs to be constantly filled with power, as Paul calls his readers to an ongoing relationship of dependence. You can see the, the need to engage. This is no let go and let God theology whatsoever. It is aggressively engaging, actively disciplining ourselves unto godliness. The Christian life is one of spiritual discipline. It's a call to be strengthened in the strength of another, consciously walking in step with His Spirit. You know, as the Ephesian saints lived in a cesspool of paganism, they needed to recognize and be reminded constantly that power was not mediated through their former pagan 
methods of incantations and formulas and shamanistic rituals. It's only through living vital union with Christ as we participate in His resurrection and exaltation. This is no laissez-faire attitude that will suffice. There's no need to cast out or bind anything, contrary to popular opinion, or even to talk to Satan. There is simply a need to trust Christ, to pray to our Heavenly Father, to call others to repentance from the kingdom of darkness and obey the Word. There's too many people in our day living under the sovereignty of Satan rather than living under the unstoppable power of a sovereign Lord who's got the devil on his leash for his intended purpose. So how is this strength conveyed? It's by appropriating His gracious provisions which He'll elongate later on in the text. But notice in verse 11, the second command in the text, He says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Whole armor is just one word in the Greek, and it refers to the soldier's panoply, uh, this complete suit, all six items that we'll look at in just a moment. And so he employs the, the imagery of a Roman man of arms fully equipped for the heavy battle. This armor of God is what he himself provides, each piece provided by him. It's a complete provision so that no portion of our person is left exposed and unprotected. I guess the question for us today is, are you a fully equipped soldier or are you just holding a weapon or two? Because that doesn't suffice for the battle. He's provided it all ready for our use, but it remains for us to use it and all of it because He'll not do for us what He's commanded us to do. So we need to faithfully accept and implement what He offers. I think that probably the, the simplest answer for so much failure on the battlefield, it's not God's fault. It's our disobedience, our lack of diligently employing His means of grace to stand. So He gives us this command that is urgent and decisive. He says, put on the full armor of God. If you wait until the, you, you see the enemy on the horizon, it's too late. Too late to arm yourself. You need to prepare in advance, beloved. I wish we had time to develop the connection between this and Paul's clothing language um, in, in Pauline theology, but back in chapter 4 and verse 24, he talked about putting on the new self. Put on the new self. Peter Toole O'Brien picks up on this, this connection of putting on the armor with, with uh, Paul, the rest of Paul's uh, clothing imagery, and he says, essentially then, to put on the new self is the same as donning the armor of God. In other words, knowing the truth of who we are in union with Christ, cultivating the virtues of this new identity and using the resources available through this new relationship are at the heart of what it means to put on the armor of God. It is no one-time action. The context suggests that arming should occur on a regular basis. So we've got this command right out of the starting gate in verse 10, to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. 
and to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. No losing ground, no slipping and sliding, but firmly standing your ground. Be strong and put on your armor. I think thirdly, what he, what he then goes on to do, he, he wants us to be aware of the spiritual nature of life's struggle, and he does so not so much through command, but the brutal truth of the reality of who we are and how we are to live. In military strategy, the failure to estimate properly the strength and capabilities of an enemy would be your fatal downfall. Downfall. In the Christian life, it's not only tragic, but inexcusable, because we're clearly warned of the nature of our conflict, the character of our enemy, and the provision for defeat. You look at the, the devil, these, these many schemes that he, he, he talks about. He says in verse 12 that our, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness in the heavenly places. We need to be aware of this. We were told back in chapter 4, verse 27, not to give place to this one, Diabolos, the devil. He's an intelligent being that carefully schemes and strategizes his plans against the church, against God's plan of redemption and individual believers. To put it differently, you're a marked target. You've got a bullseye on your chest. He'll come at you through people teaching contrary to the one faith, back in chapter 4, verse 5, one faith. He'll come at you through temptations, difficult trials, overt manifestations, or any of a limitless array of intelligently designed plots. Think about his, his big temptation tackle box. What he uses to trip you up is probably different than what he uses to trip me up. But he's been at it a long time, and he uses manifold schemes to do it. And so he, Paul wants to open our blind eyes to the struggle in verse 12. I, this is kind of a surprising term because Paul's now mixing metaphors. Amidst the military terms, he inserts an athletic image. It's, a, it's related to wrestling. Wrestling was common in many Olympic-style games held in, the Western, in Western Asia Minor and throughout the Mediterranean world. He's mixed metaphors elsewhere. Earlier in the book, in chapter 3, verse 17, he talked about how we are rooted and established in love. He uses an organic term with construction. But, you know, this is the Apostle Paul. If he wants to mix metaphors, go ahead and we'll unpack them to see what the spiritual meaning is that that uh, is to convey. But possibly it was to convey the hand-to-hand, close-up, in-your-face nature of spiritual warfare. This is where we live, friends. Every day, every moment of every day, it's in our face. This word verbal cognate is used in the, in the Greek Septuagint in uh, Genesis 32, speaking of Jacob wrestling with God. There's our term, he, when, God, when Jacob wrestled with God. And maybe here he uses it just to magnify the personal nature. He's getting in our lives. He's getting in our kitchen. This is where we live out our lives for the Lord. Anyways, this struggle is, is not what we see. It's not what we feel in the physical world with blood and flesh, which constitutes so much of our attention. 
you know, in their context, perhaps highlighting that the struggle wasn't their fight against any Roman rulers. It wasn't against any local civic rulers who might oppose them. In, in our struggle, you might think that your, your opponent is your sibling or your parent or your spouse, your boss or some other persecutor, that they're the enemy. No, Satan's the enemy, and he has many pawns. So Paul says, be strong, be aware, and he said, put on, verse 11. So we want to look a little bit deeper on the, on the specifics. He gives the general principles, uh, verses 10 through 13, and it, now he, he speaks about the specific articles for battle, verses 14 to 17. And notice how he repeats the mandate here in verse 14. Again, he says, stand. So he gives that note of urgency. This is the third time he uses it, verse 11, verse 13, and verse 14. What is God expecting? What is God demanding? Nothing else but standing firmly will suffice to bring Him eternal glory. In the face of opposition, though all hell's onslaught belches forth, God says through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul to his church, stand. Since the powerful spiritual enemy attacks the church and since God makes superior strength available, stand. This is the heading over the whole section, this command to stand. Be strong. Don't falter. And it's very interesting how he does this. What, after this command, he gives four imper- imperatives showing that, uh, that uh, the ability to stand is directly linked to our preparation beforehand because he says, having girded, having put on, having shod, and taking up. These are previous actions before the battle rages. We're supposed to be applying diligence to the Christian life and spiritual warfare, doing all this preparation ahead of time, living every second with God's kingdom agenda. So the command to stand is made possible because they've put on these pieces of armor. Every provision for standing has been made. So in the divine co-op of progressive sanctification and growth into Christ-likeness, we respond in obedient robing with the whole armor. And notice the first article he commands us to put on, having girded your loins with the truth. So the girdle of truth, this, the, this was a belt that was made of leather thongs and not only protected your thighs, but could, you, could, you could tuck in the long skirt of your robe for greater freedom and moving as you're, as you're warring about. This and the other articles I don't think are so important as the spiritual truth that that Roman um, armor is meant to convey. You know, the metaphor, each of these metaphors is meant to convey spiritual truth. You know, Paul is probably making a, a lot of references in this passage to Isaiah's writings. Here of Isaiah 11.5, which states that, that Messiah's righteousness will be the girdle of His waist. 
So think of, don't think of the Roman soldier. Think of the messianic war, warrior because his many traits are now to characterize his people as they carry out his mission and battle his enemies. There's a lot of discussion. I can't tell you about all the ink that is spilled by commentators on whether each of these articles of armor are objective or subjective realities. You know, we, we believe that the Bible teaches, uh, you know, when, we, when we practice our, our Bible study technique and, and interpret Scripture, we believe in the singleness of meaning. Each text is only conveying one truth. There's one meaning. We want to unpack the author's intent, what God means by what He says. There's only one truth being conveyed, yet it can have different nuances that do not in- introduce a foreign meaning whatsoever, different than what the author intends. Let me give you an example. When He tells us by command that we were to be having girded our loins with truth, is this objective truth? Christianity? the gospel, the common confession of the early church, or is it the subjective believer's integrity and faithfulness and practice and honesty as a good, consistent Christian would do? I think we can probably see both nuances here because Paul uses both throughout the epistle of Ephesians. Thus, it's the objective truth of the Word of God and the lives of believers that are consistent with that revealed truth as our standard. In this, in this, what we call the practical section, not that the first half of Ephesians is not practical because theology is for doing, but in this section, chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, where we're seeing the, uh, the practical level of putting into practice who we are in Christ, we've got both active, active here. This practical section, we we see emphasized our developing attitude of truthfulness and integrity as we demonstrate our union with Christ, who is truth. But how do we get there? You can't have a life that is characterized by truth without the objective truth of the Word of God. In this day in which there is a war on the truth. This article is basic to all the other articles that He commands us to put on. As we stand against the devil who is a liar, he's the father of it, John 8, When he lies, he speaks his native language. He desires to deceive and to trick believers with as many schemes. So we want to compare every desire, every experience, and every thought against the standard of the Word of God, and to make sure that we live consistently in light of it as we appropriate our new identity in Christ. We want to avoid hypocrisy and live in sincerity and truthfulness, obedient to revealed truth. So stand firm, having girded your loins with the truth. Put on the girdle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Again, I cannot emphasize enough the necessity to prepare in advance. Having put this one on. None can do it for you, friend. You know, as as people come to me for a biblical counseling or any kind of shepherding care in the church, I wish I could. 
because you see the struggles and the difficulties people are going on, but we cannot do this for another. Now, this could be a reference to Isaiah 59, 17 of God as divine warrior who put on His breastplate. What's the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is that righteousness from God has been made known, a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I don't remember how many years ago it was. I think I preached an entire sermon on just one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the, the richness of the theology there in regards to righteousness, this, this, this uh, imputation, this, this, this crediting that took place, that He made Him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So the Father looked upon the Son as if He had sinned. The wrath of the Father was turned away so that as we're robed in the perfections, the righteousness of Jesus... He can look at us through His own righteous robes. We're free from the guilt of, of verdict as we're forgiven all our sins on the basis of Christ's blood. We're reconciled to God as friend and enjoy a new status as sons and daughters of God. One of the grandest schemes of the devil is calling into question our status before God as righteous. Now, there's allowance there. We, we, the more you study the Scriptures, you, you spend any time in Matthew 7, that there's, there's going to be a, a lot of false professions. A lot of people who profess to know Jesus Christ, they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but their life does everything to deny that. There's a lot of false professions. We admit that as we study the Scriptures. But if you're in Christ, and you know that you're in Christ... Don't let the devil cause you to doubt in the dark what has been revealed to you in the truth. I don't know that he's just referring to the objective righteousness of God here, however, but the ongoing practical righteousness in our daily dealings with God and man. Because as we, as we study the theology of Pauline epistles especially, we see that justification and sanctification are inextricably linked together. You cannot profess to be a Christian when all of your life denies it. You cannot say that you've been justified and lead an unjustified life. Sanctification, you know, a sanctified walk is what, what helps us greatly with our assurance of salvation so that the more consistent practice with our position we grow in our hatred of sin and our love for righteousness. So Paul says to, to don the, uh, the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. And what else do we do in advance? Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Sandals are the preparation of the gospel of peace. Have you fastened on your sandals? These were no running sandals, but these were what, what were worn by Roman legionnaires. They were studded with hobnails on the bottom so that uh, you, when you're fighting, you're not going to slip. You're going to lean into the war. You're going to lean into that hand-to-hand -hand combat. Though there are a host of texts that teach the absolute imperative to preach the gospel to unbelievers, give them the good news of how sinners can be reconciled to a holy God, 
And one of those would be Isaiah 52.7, similar to this verse. It, it mentions uh, the feet and proclamation and peace. But what about the context here in Ephesians 6? The context here is that believers might stand. The main verb in verse 14 is stand, not advance. Context is about putting on defensive rather than offensive weaponry. Preparation is demanded, not proclamation. So we've got a host of verses all through Scripture that command us to take the good news to others. I think the emphasis here in this verse, however, is the good news of the gospel for believers. Gospel sufficiency, are you living in it? It's this heart peace produced by the gospel that gives the Christian warrior his readiness for combat. Having conscious peace with God and the peace of God that guards our heart in tranquil communion enable us to engage the battle with strong determination and calm assurance. Not too many years ago, Milton Vincent wrote a great little booklet. I don't know if it's still in the book nook here, if we sold all the copies, but it's uh, titled, The Gospel Premer for Believers. The Gospel for Believers. And in that booklet, uh, he says, the gospel serves as the means by which God daily constructs me into what He wants me to be and also serves as the channel through which He gives me my inheritance every day of my Christian life. Hence, it could be said that the gospel contains all I need for life and godliness. It is for this reason that God tells me to be steadfastly entrenched in the gospel at all times and never to allow myself to be moved from there. The mere fact that God tells me to stay inside the gospel at all times must mean that He intends me to supply all of my needs as long as I am abiding in that place of luxury. He makes a... uh, Uh, Somewhere in that book, he makes a connection here to our text with uh, uh, obediently standing because we have robed ourselves for spiritual battle. He says, as long as I'm inside the gospel, I experience all the protection I need from the powers of evil that rage against me. It's for that reason that the Bible tells me to take up and to put on the whole armor of God. And the pieces of armor it tells me to put on are all merely synonyms for the gospel. Translated literally from the Greek, they are the salvation, the justification, truth, the gospel of peace, the faith, and the Word of God. What are all these expressions that various ways, uh, but various ways of describing the gospel? Therefore, if you wish to stand victoriously in Jesus, I must do as the songwriter suggests and put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. That God would tell me to take up and to put on this gospel armor alerts me to the fact that I do not automatically come into each day protected by the gospel. In fact, these commands imply that I'm vulnerable to defeat and injury unless I seize upon the gospel and arm myself with it from head to toe. And what better way is there to do this than to preach the gospel to myself and to make it the obsession of my heart through each day, unquote. Yes, beloved, we are commanded from cover to cover of Holy Scripture to take the good news to unbelievers because it's the only source of eternal life. 
But let's not think that having believed that we have gotten past the gospel. The gospel is never treated as past tense. We, we shouldn't get too big for our britches thinking that we've grown past the gospel. I like how C.J. Mahaney puts it in his uh, book, The Cross-Centered Life. He says, the gospel is not one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel, unquote. Friends, we need to get daily lost in wonder, love, and praise resting in His righteousness, the righteousness of another that was credited to us. That is our daily confidence for standing. So have you fastened your sandals on? How about the shield of faith in verse 16? This is no shield. There were, uh, if you were fighting in the Roman army, you'd have a, uh, a handheld, uh, about a two to two and a half foot uh, shield on your, on your, that you'd uh, grab a hold of on your arm. That's not what he's talking about here. We're talking about the big boy that was two and a half feet by four feet. It's covered with canvas and then calf skin so that it could quench the, the flaming arrows that are coming its way. And it had iron at the top and at the bottom so that when you'd thrust it down into the ground to hide behind while all the onslaught of the arrows are coming at you, you could hide behind it until the uh, 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 archer emptied his quiver. Had a, had a boss on the front so that heavy arrows and stones would glance off. A soldier could crouch behind it till... The archers were done with those many arrows. Constantly in the Old Testament, a shield is the metaphor used for God's power and protection of His people. You remember reading in Genesis about the uh, Abrahamic covenant in um, Genesis chapter 15? Where after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, don't fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. What a comfort that must have been as he was getting ready to go where he didn't know where he was going. And he's launching out under the shield of God. Turn with, if you would, to the psalmist as he uh, uses some of this language. In Psalm, Psalm 5, Psalm 5 and verse number 12. Beginning in verse 11, the psalmist says, Let all who take refuge in you, O God, be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and make you, make you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield, that big shield that would surround you. No matter what was coming your way, They'd go blistering off. Over in Psalm 18 and verse number 2, it's used in a similar vein. Psalm 18, 2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, 
my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. All those synonyms used in verse 2 of the protector while we're in the battle. This too could have both nuances of, is, is it speaking of objective faith, that which it, the faith believed, the one faith of Ephesians 4, 5, or is it speaking of subjective faith, personal faith of the believer? I think the latter is probably more defensible in the, in the context, but it is the faith, once for all delivered, that informs our faith. Our, our personal faith is anchored in the bedrock of God's truth. So again, there's that, that connection Personal faith is not divorced from objective body of truth in God's promises. You know, we're commanded to resist Him firm in our faith. Not just here, we're told in, in 1 Peter 5. What does that mean? I don't think it's just intellectual assent of some abstract ideas or vague feelings about the Almighty in the Bible. But this faith, this shield that protects us from the storm and the onslaught in the battle is a conviction of known truth, a rock-solid confidence that springs from that conviction. It's a firm persuasion of an unwavering trust in God and His Son. This is where the battle rages because we know, but we disobey and we doubt which too is disobedience. I can't tell you how often in counseling, whether it's depression or anxiety and fear, there's that constant need to, to bring a, a hurting saint to a reminder, even a gentle exhortation that this is a walk of faith, and we are called in obedience to trust Him, to buck up and believe rather than feel when all around us, our feelings are saying, give up. You know, both, this is both a theology of God's omnipotence and promises to do that all He said He would, and appropriating those truths during the attacks. So, beloved, make sure that you are standing firm because you're putting on the girdle of truth, you're, you're strapping on your gospel sandals. You're uh, taking up the shield of faith so that you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Notice the, the fifth article. He says, make sure you also grab the helmet of salvation. Take it up. In Isaiah 59, 17, this is used again of the divine warrior who put on the helmet of salvation. The idea in that verse is that of God coming to defend His people. Rock-solid confidence that will take care of me. Come hell or high water, I'm ready for it. He not only fights for His people, but He makes available to His people those provisions. He imparts His divine resources so that they can directly engage supernatural enemies. We're assured of salvation future in deliverance from judgment. Paul wrote Ephesians to who? The saints at Ephesus. So salvation past was already assumed. They've come to faith in Christ. So the future is settled. The, the past is taken care of. 
What's that other tense of salvation? The present tense. This helmet must be donned daily in the ongoing fight. Do you currently have a settled assurance that you're truly saved and that you can't eternally be harmed? Salvation assurance is what protects against cowardly fears that rage within our hearts. If you don't settle the issue of whether you're born again or not, you're going to be unstable in all your ways. Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you've been the faith. Peter says, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Why? So that I can stand substantially and accomplish something for God's glory, not constantly whether, whether I'm in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. If you've got questions about where you're at with the Lord, if, you, if there's never come a time in your life where you've, a, uh, you've turned from your sin and embraced Jesus as perfect life live and the death that He died for sinners as a substitute, we'd love to open our Bibles and talk with you. That'd be the greatest joy of our hearts. So salvation, yes, is a, a future cer- certainty for the saint, but it's also a present possession down in the gutters and the foxholes of battle. So grab your helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which He interprets for us, is the Word of God. This is the only offensive weapon. God's given us His Spirit uh, and His Spirit-inspired Word. Only two resources to live our lives, the Spirit and the Word. One of the foundational realities we've got to come to grips with that the Bible teaches is our total depravity, total inability to respond righteously to God. We can't even know truth. We can't even know reality because of our depravity. Everything is is twisted. And so total depravity necessitates divine revelation. He's given us His inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient Word, and it's wholly adequate, and it's only the Word that is adequate. Not our fallen logic, not human intuition, not our reasoning. I think one of the the greatest examples of that would be our Savior in Matthew 4. Remember in Matthew 4, before Jesus launched His public ministry and verses 1 through 11, the, the, uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and three times His response to the onslaughts of hell were, it is written, it is written, it is written. All that He did in the flesh, uh, in His sojourn, in His incarnation, He did through the power of the Spirit to show us what life in the Spirit looks like. And so Matthew 4 ought to be our example of this standing, especially here as we, as we take the sword of the Spirit which our Savior showed us how to wield, know it, and how to apply it to every issue of life. You know, we're talking of speaking the truth in context to every situation not hermeneutical hopscotch like so many false teachers of our day do, jumping around, ripping verses from the historical grammatical context, but we're exegeting the meaning of what God means by what He says, authorial intent, what does Paul mean by these words, and how He arranged it, so that I can bring that to bear on this event and that event and this issue that I'm contemplating. 
every issue of life, every situation of testing, every temptation, like our Savior did. Because surely it's His Word that we've hidden in our heart that we might not sin against Him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote of Martin Luther. He says, quote, Luther was held in darkness by the devil, though he was a monk. He was, tried, he, he was trying to save himself by works. He was fasting, sweating, and praying, and yet he was miserable and unhappy and in bondage. Superstitious Roman Catholic teaching held him captive, but he was delivered by the Word of God. When he read that the just shall live by faith. From that moment, he began to understand this word as he had never understood it before. And the better he understood it, the more he saw the errors taught by Rome. He saw the error of her practice and so became more, more intent on the reformation of the church. He proceeded to do all in terms of exposition of the Scriptures. The great doctors in the Roman church stood against him. He sometimes had to stand alone and meet them in close combat, and invariably, he took his stand upon the Scriptures. He maintained that the church is not above the Scriptures, the standard by which you judge. Even the church, he said, is the Scripture. And though he was one man at first standing alone, he was able to fight the papal system in 12 centuries of tradition. He did so by taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's significant that all Paul writes here, he gives us commands to be strong in the Lord and His strength, put on the full armor. He helps us recognize that it's a spiritual battle we're in, as physical as it may look. And these are the, the sovereign provisions God has given for a life of victory and standing for His supreme glory. And what's significant to all that is that it's preparation ahead of time. Having done all. You know, there's a mystery as to when this is going to happen. When, when, when's the battle coming? If you wait till engagement, you will have waited too long. We need to be living in moment by moment communion, living in vital communion with Christ, whom we're in union. That's the point of having done everything in the text. The 20th century translation uh, translates this, having fought to the end, emphasizing not just the preparation, but even the endurance to the end of conflict when the enemy has been thoroughly vanquished. This standing is the victory stance. That's God's goal. Whenever told to attack, attack Satan, but to withstand or resist him, not yielding to his blows. Yes, we live in an evil age, beloved. It's, it's punctuated by particular evil days, spiritual battles which come unexpectedly. As McLaren observed, he said, they are days when all the cannon belch at once and scaling ladders are reared on every side of the fortress. These days are wont to come on us suddenly. They are heralded by no storm signals and no falling barometer. We may be like soldiers sitting securely round the campfire till all at once bullets begin to fall among them. Against such days, we must always be ready. It could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. A well-armed believer will be able to hold his ground. But it takes a significant investment of time and effort expended in becoming well-prepared for the inevitable attacks that come our way. 
So have you made those preparations before the battle ensues? Do you endure to the end in victory? The, the faithful and productive Christian life is nothing less than fierce, relentless struggle against the rulers, against the powers, against wickedness in the heavenly places. One teacher put it this way, commenting on that verse. He said, it had been a fight against Satan, against the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this darkness in the heavenlies. It had been against Jewish and pagan vice and violence, against Judaism among the Galatians, against fanaticism among the Thessalonians, against contention, fornication, litigation among the Corinthians, against incipient Gnosticism among the Ephesians and Colossians, against fightings without and fears within, and last but not least, against the law of sin and death operating within his own heart. Beloved, that's ready for battle as he equipped us through his word for his supreme glory. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that we can understand what you mean by what you say, and having understood it, we can actually obey it through the indwelling Spirit. Give us much zeal in our study of Scripture, much discernment as to the issues of life and how to bring the Word to bear. Cause us to don each article of spiritual warfare that you so graciously provided that when we stand, you would receive all the boasting all the praise, all the accolades. We thank you for your provision, asking that we might honor the Savior through our battle. Give us much victory for your glory, we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.